Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. This is season three, Back to the Killing Fields. This season, we are revisiting the Texas Killing Fields. In the following episodes, we will cover a broader area. This is in an effort to connect some of the cases covered in season one. We plan to bring to you some of the known serial killers in this broader area that may have murdered some of the women in the Texas Killing Fields. We will also cover some of the victims that we did not cover in season one. Season two, back to the Texas Killing Fields, episode eight, Twisted Family, the McCrary's. So back in when we started the Texas Killing Fields, at the very, very beginning, all the way back to episode five, we uh, talked about the murders of Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson. So Debbie, just to give you a little background, um, if, in case you don't remember the episode, uh, Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson were two sophomores at Ball High School in Galveston, Texas, who they were kind of on holiday from school. I think it was like a teacher work day or something. And um, so they were hanging out, uh, had gone to the Port Holiday Mall, and then were headed to like the Yacht Club and different places in Galveston. And then they had hitchhiked to Texas City. And when they hitchhiked to Texas City, they then took a cab from Texas City back to Galveston, but there was some confusion over like Debbie had left her purse in the cab. And so at 8 p.m., that's the last they're kind of seen on Galveston Island. So what police figured is that they tried to hitchhike back to Texas City to get this purse back. And um, nobody then hears from them. And it's not until the next day when Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson's body are, bodies are actually found in Turner's Bayou, which is Turner's Bayou is located northwest of, of Texas uh, City. So it's just slightly outside of Texas City. And Maria's body was found with her hands and feet tied with a crab line. She was clothed only in a shirt. She had been shot in the head with a 38 caliber pistol. And Debbie was found nearby she too was bound with uh shoelaces from a men's shoes she had no clothes below her waist she was found near the uh near the bank and there was also like a pair of rubber gloves found some clothing that may have belonged to the girls and some 38 caliber shells i believe were found there on the shoreline so with that case, they were able to recover those bullets. And in that, very early on in the beginning, there was some discussion about those bullets being ballistically compared to or the bullets found at other crime scenes that were attributed to the McCrary family. And so at the point in time that um, we have done that episode, we always thought that we would go back and kind of look and give you a little background into the McCrary's, seeing if they could be tied to this area. But the more research that we kind of came across, we've never really tied the McCrary's to 
kind of the south of Houston area. And so we never went back and looked at them. Kind of feeling like we left that as a whole, we decided to go ahead and cover them today. So the McCrary family is often described as a nomad, nomad family of gypsies. Um, they were a Texas family, but they would um, travel from state to state, leaving crimes, murders, and robberies. The family consisted of Sherman McCrary, his wife Carolyn, their son Danny, and their daughter Ginger. Ginger had a husband. His name was Carla, Carl Taylor. Along with several small children, uh, Ginger and Carl had children, and the McCrary's also had some other smaller children who aren't uh, named in a lot of the reports. And th that would be just because they're minors. They're minors, and they didn't have any involvement. Yeah. And as far as, you know, we know they didn't have any involvement in the crimes, even though in some of these reports, as we get into to some of the different things that happened, they were present. Right. You know, they they definitely were in tow in the vehicles or at the campsites that the McCrary's were out. You know, you know, we're you're saying that now, and it's just like my mind keep went back for a second. It's like people are doing these things with kids in the car or right. with them. I mean, this isn't the first time we've heard this. It's just weird. So, um. The head of the family was Sherman Raymond McCrary. He was born in Byers, Oklahoma on December 6, 1925 to Daniel and Annie McCrary. At the time of his birth, Byers would have been at the peak of population um, with a little over 600 residents. And this is in Texas? No, that would be in Oklahoma. Okay. Yeah. So there, when he's born, he's in Oklahoma. Um, However, I guess this town certainly has a uh, sunken population because at today's level, I bet there, I guess there are only about 200 people living there. Um, at the time of his birth, his father Daniel worked as a farmer owning his own farm. Sherman was the firstborn in the family, later welcoming his sister Virginia about five years later. So Sherman's pretty much born, and then tragedy strikes when. German's father, Daniel, um, actually, in order to make extra money, was working as a truck driver in Texas, and sadly, he would die in a tragic accident while on the road transporting a load of pipe. The load of pipe shifted and impaled him. Yeah. So the load of pipe actually shifted forward through the, through the truck, um, impaling him in the truck. Jesus. What a way to go. Yeah. So, um, so at this point in time, the family had moved... Um, to outside Dallas, Texas. In Texas, Sherman, so they stay after after his father dies. So um, Sherman meets and marries Carolyn Tribble. She was about 16 years old and he was 18. They got married in February of 1943 and they begin to have a family. Um, Ginger Liddell is born in 1949 and Danny's born in 1952. Charlene's born in 59. Daniel, whose nickname was Danny, was raised to believe that robbing was a way of life. And he also knew better than to question his father. He actually attempted at one point in time to leave the family, um, but he did return. Danny was charged in Dallas with breaking and entering a vehicle and giving two years given two years probation, but
but Danny didn't really keep his nose clean. Um, he returned to the family and got right back involved in some of what was going on with them. Ginger suffered as a child and an adult with really debilitating asthma. Ginger married when she was 17 to a man named Jerry Lee Johnson. The marriage didn't last long. She was divorced within two years. So Jerry and Ginger did have one child, a boy who was named after his father. After Ginger gets divorced from Jerry, she meets Carl Robert Taylor. Carl Robert Taylor was married prior to um, meeting Ginger, but we don't know a whole lot about that relationship. What we do know is at the time that he meets Ginger, Carl is 36 years old. So he's quite a bit older than quite a bit older. She's 19. He's 36. So there's there's an incredible age difference there. They get married um, in 1970. Ginger begins having children with Carl pretty much right away. They have a son named Carl, and then they have a second son named Glenn. And at the time of her arrest, she was actually pregnant with their third child. Carl was not a nice guy. He was known to be incredibly mean and dangerous. But Ginger stated that she loved her husband and she would never have left, would never leave him. She stated that she was sorry for the road that his life took, but but she wanted everybody to consider that all the money he stole went to his family. So it's kind of like a Robin Hood story. Yeah, I guess so. You know? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, he really was kind of a nice guy, I guess. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, if if you consider that robbing people who also didn't have them the money to spare just so that you could raise your family to be a nice guy, sure. And then it gets even more gruesome as time goes on. Right. So back to Sherman's wife. Um, her name was Carolyn. She was actually a simple woman. She was obedient to a fault to her husband. She said that she could not read um, and had no way to support herself or her family without her husband. And so if she left, where would she go anyway? And where would she take her kids? Right. And she wouldn't be able to really work. So, and I think that, you know, when you, when you look at that with Carolyn and Ginger, there are two parts there. You can look at both Carolyn and Ginger as victims, but sometimes in life you can be a victim, but turning a blind eye to things that are going on also makes you part perpetrator too. And I think as we get deeper into what happened here, they bear some responsibility. Oh, absolutely. I mean... Because you never had the intentions of trying to stop it. No, I don't think you I know. Think... And if you know, you know right and wrong. But so. I mean, just from that, from the side of domestic violence, though, I do believe that these two women would have been in incredible danger by stopping anything that was going on. And with the reign of terror that goes across the country with uh, Sherman and Carl Johnson, um, and then also Danny. That's essentially true because they knew how much danger they were in. Mm -hmm. So they're witnessing that. 
But the way that this kind of all unfolds, this, on June 17th, 1972, a man walked into Giordano's, a supermarket in Santa Barbara, California, and robbed it. Getting away was about $3,000. He was confronted by an officer named Dennis Huddle, who he shot in the head. So Dennis was actually seriously wounded and rushed into surgery where the 32 caliber bullet was removed from his head and given to the N-I-B-I-N. What is that? So it's like the national um, ballistics, you know, it's, it's Unit, like the like, arm. Yeah. yeah. It's um, so it's basically an arm that's going to run um, ballistics on it. That bullet that 32 caliber bullet was actually connected to other cases. And that's where this all kind of, kind of happens. So, but at the point where he goes in and he robs the supermarket, the chase was on for the suspect. So um, the suspect runs away, um, gets in a getaway car and fled. Police follow the car into the garage follow the car to the garage of Carla, Carl Taylor. But Taylor was gone. Police wanted to talk to him. Um, and so when Taylor basically gets home, he packs up and hightails it out of there. And at this point, they have an officer shot. So they're looking everywhere. Yeah. I mean, we, and we know like when an officer is shot, everybody's right. out so, looking. Yeah. You know, all the police forces. And so finally, he was picked up in Amarillo, Texas on June 23rd, 1972, with his wife, Ginger. At the time of their arrest, um, they had three small children with them. And Ginger was pregnant again with one child. So the three small children would actually be Jerry, Carl, and Glenn. And then she's pregnant with what they're referring to sometimes as the third child. It would be the third child for that relationship, but Ginger's fourth child. So um, she would deliver that child in prison and name him Daniel after her grandfather. And Daniel then was given up for adoption. The other children would be put in foster care. The two oldest finally being adopted together. It's interesting about the kids and kind of give you a little tidbit on them years later. So, but we kind of have to get into the stories, the rest of what happens with these cases. But kind of remember these kids being given up for adoption because they do come into play a little bit. The police would also arrest Carl's in-law, Sherman McCrary, and his wife, Carolyn, and their son, Danny. Danny at the time was only 19 for accessories to robbery and shooting they had at that time they had no idea the can of worms that these arrests would cause police found an arsenal of pistols guns theatrical makeup kit and two thousand dollars in cash so what do you think they were doing with the makeup kit like why is that relevant they were just like making disguises like yeah they're making disguises yeah. to go into places and rob them so um yeah at that point in time they just basically you know face painting to disguise whoever they are um That's extra yeah officers then uh went back to texas to um to talk to the uh tailors inform them that they were facing charges in california and the um 
attempt to extradite them at the time. So at the time, Sherman, Carolyn, and Danny's arrest, Carolyn still had three other children living in the home. Tammy was the youngest and only 10 years old. Um, so they're also then, because of that ballistics charge, now a couple other states kind of get involved. One of the other states that gets involved is Colorado because Colorado has an open homicide. It ties back to the ballistics on that gun. Well, actually, on one of the guns that was found in the home. Oh, okay. So, and this is where our case kind of intersects because when we talked about that 38 caliber pistol, you know, that police have those, um, those bullets from Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson. That's where they start looking is do those bullets match any of this possibility? Right. And, um, and so when we talked about, you know, the fact that we had kind of looked at this case and run across them, that's what they were looking at. Those, sadly, and those bullets never matched any of the cases that. McCrary's. Yeah, that, in the Galveston area and the Texas killing fields. Not to say that they couldn't have been here because they could have. But ballistic wise, they never matched. So, um, Sherman and Carl were charged with the, um, other super, with the several other supermarket robberies in California. Carl then pled guilty to the robberies and, um, one other shoot, and then the shooting of Officer Huddle. The wives, Carolyn and, uh, Ginger, Plus, Danny, all pled guilty to accessories after the fact, all in California. So this goes down relatively quickly. And the district attorney at the time was was kind of feeling like, hey, you know, he's got this wrapped up in a nice, tidy bow. Um, and I think really the McCreary's were thinking, hey, plead guilty to this, get on their probation or or do their prison time. And then get out of dodge right you know um but and that, what because they don't want them to look further into stuff that they're doing exactly right exactly because any further scrutiny on these cases they're going to look outside of california and they're going to find a lot of information and that's where the ballistics ultimately connected the cases um the ballistics had already linked by the fbi linked to six cases they were just looking for the gun to match it and the guns found in the mccurry's home were seized due to the arrest on August 12th, 1971, at 10.30 p.m., office, um, a police officer in Kearns, Utah, outside of Salt Lake, noticed that the blinds of the donut shop were um, being closed like the business was being shut down for the day. This would would not be a strange thing, except the shop was a 24-hour shop. 
the officer called the owner of the shop who said that the shop should still be open. It was staffed by a 17-year-old high school student named Sherry Martin. The owner met the officer at the shop and they found that it was locked, but Martin's car was still parked outside. They entered and there was no sign of her, no sign of the cash register, which would have been no sign of the money in the cash register, which would have been about $83. So <laughs> this is interesting because at the time, officers actually thought that maybe Sherry took the money and ran away with it. But it was quickly decided that she wasn't that type of girl. You know, $83 is a is a good amount of money back then, but it's not that much money. Mm-hmm. Not for a 17-year-old high school student with her own car outside to be like, hey, you know. Plus, why would you leave your car? Yeah. I mean, you know, I do wonder, like, how quickly did you think that maybe Sherry took the money? I'm hoping it was like, oh, maybe Sherry took the money. Oh, wait, her car's sitting outside. Because I just don't think that that's a plausible scenario. Not to be certain of, no. Right. So Sherry, objectively, I guess you have to look at all aspects of it, but like you said, what sense does that make? Yeah, it doesn't, you know. So Sherry was a devoted uh, Mormon. She was devoted to her faith and family. She was a straight A high school student. Um, Police did begin to lose faith in um, finding Sherry when a witness came forward and said that they had saw her at a mall a couple of days after she was reported missing. So they did kind of spend some time on, on that. Um, the FBI who was brought in to look at the case a few days later found that the shop had been wiped clean of all prints, except for those on a mug left at the counter. They also found that the register tape showed the last two items rang up were two cups of coffee. At that point, a witness came forward and said she had come in about 10 p.m. to make a purchase, and there were two men sitting at the table. One um, cussed and then turned, and that turned the woman off. Now, this witness, she doesn't say anything about seeing Sherry? Um, she doesn't say that Sherry wasn't there. Uh-huh. So I'm, there wasn't anything that, like, put her off. I mean, she came in, and it, there was nothing for her to say oh, you know, um, it didn't seem like the young girl was there. It was just that she was like, when she came in, the guy was cursing, and she was like, I'm not staying. And so she kind of left. Other than the cussing, there was nothing really to be alarmed about. There was nothing Mm -hmm. to be alarmed about. And so, yeah, she's a witness who later is kind of looking back on it, being like, oh, that's why I was so uncomfortable, you know, and didn't want to stay. But it's not anything that she could have been like oh maybe she should have called the police about him mm-hmm. well what cause would she have i mean oh he's cussing yeah i need you to come out here in the donut uh, shop you know yeah i mean i don't know in 1972 in utah that might have caused the police to drive on by so but again utah so maybe in her mind like you know he's cussing he's out of place like, you know, in her mind, something made her uncomfortable with I you definitely know? think that in public in 1970 in Utah, which would have been primarily you have a large Mormon population there, even to this day, where cursing is not acceptable and certainly not cursing in public like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so, yes, I would think that would have been something that would have been very out of place for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and would have made her very uncomfortable. 
Her hands had been tied with a nylon sock, and she had been shot at least eight times. That is crazy. I know. Oh, gosh. Um, and it's definitely one of those cases where police were looking at the brutality here of being shot eight times. Like, is there a possibility that that was somebody that she knew? But again, you know... We've seen this in other cases, too. There was a battle between law enforcement agencies over which county should be in charge, which county should take possession of her body, which county should um, be in charge of the case. And this is because the county where she's adopted, where she lived, which was in uh, Kearns, Utah, and then where she's found in Wendover, Utah, Wendover wanted to have custody of the case because that's where the body was found and Kearns wanted to have custody of the case because that's where she went to where the robbery happened and where she disappeared. It wouldn't be until after the arrests in California that it then kind of became like the FBI's case and then getting those agencies to work together to try to figure this out actually happened. But up until that point, there was like infighting over this wow so i mean they they want the same goal they want to be able to solve the case but it's you know right the possession of it i guess the other things that happened in that is you know when they're getting the ballistics back and all of that it was the fingerprints of the ta of uh taylor that actually matched the um coffee fingerprints mugs. on the coffee mugs hmm. so and you know one of the things that it's and how stupid is that, though? Honestly, they talk about how the crime scene was wiped down, but you don't get the cups. Well, you see, I don't, cups. I don't actually think the crime scene was wiped down. I actually think that that's very typical of kind of the evening closing shift, right? Yeah. You're going to be wiping down all yeah. the counters. You're going to be like windexing the door, cleaning off all the door handles and stuff like that. That's part of your closing tasks or actually part of the evening persons because that was a 24 hour place. I think she, she did that. She's wiping down everything. She's cleaning up everything and she's doing that with the sanitized water. So it's kind of wiping all right. of that away. And then she is and then kidnapped in. Yeah. before she's picked up those cups. Right. I got you. Okay. So, that actually makes sense. I mean, that's just me personally. I don't know that for sure, but I think that it, at least a majority of the prints yeah. were taken care of by her. Right. So as part of what, what she was supposed to be doing, which shows you it was probably a good place to eat. You know, it was clean. They would have had like the clean bill. So, but in our next episode, we're going to cover those other cases. Those cases and Sherry's case would actually be